welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We're going to hear the word read. We are back in our series in Luke after a couple of weeks away. We now come to the text in Matthew 19, chapter, pardon me, chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. And so let us hear the word of God together. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is God's holy word. May its truth penetrate our hearts and lives in a powerful way. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, the focus of this passage may not be obvious. It is about gospel conflict. And so I've titled the message today that it's really a story of the reaction of a godless world to the great gospel bearer, Jesus Christ. It falls in the middle of an entire chapter, chapter 20 of Luke, that has the same theme. The theme of the entire chapter is gospel conflict. You can read through it, and it's made up of six different uh, points of conflict, confrontations, conversations, teaching moments, events, that all are composed by the hostile enemies of Christ and the gospel and Christ's answer to each of their attacks. There's an attack that we've already read about as we studied the chapter a few weeks ago about spiritual authority. That's how the chapter opened, where they challenged Jesus in chapter 20, verse 2, about what authority he had to do these things and to teach this way. And Christ answered it powerfully, and they had no answer. Then last, uh, the last time we were in the gospel, we went through the parable of the wicked tenants, the land, the landowners who rebelled against the owner and slayed uh, all the, the servants sent to him to get fruit from his vineyard and, and in the end plotted to kill his very son. And Jesus, of course, used that as a parable for the history that they had. So their spiritual authority was challenged in the first part of the chapter. And then their murderous history was exposed as hypocritical leaders over all the history of Israel. And they were exposed in chapter 
20 verse 14 as the very people who would kill the Son of God outside Jerusalem and fulfill their murderous hearts. And so this exposed them to the people and they knew that they had been spoken to by Jesus in this parable. That created the next section which we're going to be into today from 19 to 26 they reacted and they attacked him and in hypocrisy tried to trap him that's what we're going to see today so their spiritual authority was challenged then their murderous history was exposed today their personal hypocrisy is going to be opened up and then in the in the passages to follow beginning at verse 27 and going forward jesus uh, shows how cynical they were because some of his enemies would come and mock the resurrection, the very possibility of it, and certainly all of his promises that he would rise from the dead as God's son. So exposes their cynical mockery of the resurrection in, in the verses that follow our section. Then there's two more sections that complete the chapter. Their blind theology is exposed, where Jesus teaches them, beginning at verse 41 to 44, about the fact that he can be a a man and God at the same time. And in fact, David, their great prophet, had predicted that the Messiah would be the God-man, both the Son of Man and the Son of God. And they didn't see it. And Jesus shows how blind they are to their own theology, their own scriptures And then finally, there's a a summation by Jesus as he speaks about these bankrupt leaders to his disciples, and that's verses 45 to 47. And he sums up their future destiny with a chilling word. They will receive the greater condemnation when they face Almighty God. So you can see the flow of this chapter. It's a flowing story of spiritual tragedy a flowing story of failing to receive the gospel, failing to honor God's Son, living in blindness and hypocrisy and and in a spirit of challenging of authority and of murder. It is a dark chapter about gospel conflict. A flowing story of the tragedy of how a godless world reacts to the great gospel bearer. Now, it's included in Scripture, of course, by the Holy Spirit for His own reasons. But as I studied it this week, I realized that one of the reasons, at least for me, it's been included is that because it is, is that I am in gospel conflict as a Christian. And so are you. If you're faithful to live out your Christian life and tell others about the gospel, you too will experience the reaction of a godless world to your gospel bearing. And so how Jesus reacted is is a pattern for how we should react. So it's included for believing readers to follow along and and pattern themselves after the boldness of Christ. But there are also those that hear this message today who may be unbelieving. You may be a skeptic. You may be an enemy of the gospel. And this passage is for you too because it warns what can happen to you if you do not render unto God what he really wants. And that's the affection of your heart and your repentance. There's a dark story in this about you. And so for the believing person who's sharing the gospel, the message is be like Jesus in this encounter. For the unbelieving person who attacks the gospel, the message is don't keep being like the attackers in this chapter. You see, the Christian is always in gospel conflict. George Whitfield, who was a great evangelist both in England and America in the 1730s, 
back when Christianity had already taken root in both continents, underwent such hostility, often being physically uh, attacked for his faith to the point of death, constantly challenged and chased. He wrote this. He said, if you're going to walk with Jesus Christ, you're going to be opposed. In our day, to be a true Christian is really to become a scandal. Now, scandal's a weird word for us today, but Webster says you could substitute the word offense or disgrace. And as you talk with those that share their faith today in our increasingly darkened world, it is, it is an offense simply to live out your Christian values, let alone be verbal about them. Whitfield was right. In our day, to be a true Christian is to become, in the eyes of the world, an offense to them or a disgrace to them. And so you're going to taste conflict. And in this passage, you'll find help. There are five things to understand about how the passage unfolded. Five truths about gospel conflict. Let's take a look at the passage together, beginning at verse 19. And the first thing you need to see about the passage is the atmosphere of those final days. Remember, this was in the midst of the final earthly life week, rather, of Christ's life. We call it Passion Week. The final days are in the midst of it this final week. What had happened? Let me reset the scene because we've been out of this gospel for a couple of weeks. Christ had entered Jerusalem, and he had entered in what we know as as the triumphal entry, being adored by the crowds because they really thought he was going to be their earthly Messiah and deliver Israel from the domination of the Romans and bring in a golden future for Israel. They didn't understand that Scripture prophesied that before Jesus visibly returns at the end of human history and does just that for Israel and for the nation, he would have to come not as a conquering king, but first as a suffering servant. And he he would come to die on a cross for the sins of the nation. They didn't see that. They only saw the future triumph, and they thought when he entered Jerusalem, it was only a matter of days. They welcomed him triumphantly. But Christ turned the tables, and instead of setting up an earthly kingdom, began to challenge their spiritual darkness. He cleansed the temple from all the money changers and all the corruption that was going on in the temple courtyards and stunned them further. And then he began to teach every day in the temple courtyards and to speak words of confrontation toward the spiritually blind and words of invitation toward those who were wanting to repent. And that's how Jesus spent the days of his final week, Monday, Tuesday, into Wednesday. This is probably an event that takes place in the middle of that week, a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Soon he'd be on that cross. So that's the the context and the setting. Jesus had just, in fact, what happens in the first 26 verses of this chapter may all have happened on one day in the temple area. Jesus began by answering the question about his spiritual authority. We studied that. That, That's the first part of the chapter. Then he tells this incredibly eviscerating parable about how murderous these spiritual leaders were, the parable of the vineyard. And in verse 19, it says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, arrest him, take him at that very hour. So we know that that this all happened in a very short context of time, maybe all in the same day. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, and they were right. But they 
feared the people, so they held back. So what is the atmosphere of these final days? How do I describe it? Well, the people were still fascinated with Jesus and enthralled in following him in great crowds and coming to the temple every day to walk with him on the colonnades and listen to him preach and teach as he walked. The leaders were not fascinated. They were agitated and they were more and more hardened against him. And they sought to lay hands on him. They wanted to take him out of the picture. So that's the issue. That's the, the, the portrait of the atmosphere. Fascination among the people, agitation among the leaders, and plots being laid by the leaders to destroy him. Verse 19. Now that's an ageless story. Spiritual darkness will not tolerate the penetrating light of the gospel. Whether it's in a great situation like a great speech or declaration, or whether it's you in your own life, showing forth your gospel values in your workplace so that it irritates or embarrasses others. Human darkness will not tolerate gospel light. And human powers, such as they are, in any place of authority, the human powers that are in this world will always be threatened by the gospel. That's just the way it's going to be. You cannot alter it. You cannot dumb it down or rob it of its words. If you do, you no longer have a gospel. But the gospel is going to be threatening to human powers. And so my word to you as a Christian is, press on. Speak on, as Jesus did. So we know that in this atmosphere, the people are fascinated, the leaders are agitated, and the leaders now form an attack to take Jesus out. And that leads us to our second dimension or thing we need to understand, and that's the mentality of Christ's enemies. As this story now, beginning in verse 20, begins to unfold, and we see a plot being laid and the response of Christ. The mentality of Christ's enemies begins to clarify in verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. We see two things about their mentality. One, pure hostility. Hostility. Make no mistake about it. People in darkness hate the gospel. And they came at him with a hostile intent. Verse 19 says they wanted to lay hands on him. They wanted to get him executed is what that amounts to saying. They didn't just want to usher him out of the temple for the day. They wanted to lay hands on him and arrest him in some way, put him under legal arrest so that he could eventually be executed. Earlier in Luke, the Bible says that they gathered together and plotted to destroy him. So that was their intent. Don't be fooled. The problem for them was how to do that. They had a problem with the people being so enthralled with him and being political more than people of integrity. They didn't want to lose their position with the people. But they had another problem. They believed that the only way to silence the words of Jesus was to silence Jesus through death. They needed him executed. But because of the laws of the time, Israel had become a subservient nation to the Roman Empire. Rome occupied Israel and, and set its laws over Israel. And Jews were unable to create and enact a death penalty. 
Only the Roman government had the authority to do that. But everything that happened in this week was during a very important feast, the greatest feast. It was the Feast of Passover. And so Jews from all over the region had come, and Jerusalem had swelled in population, but someone else had come to town, and that was Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. He'd left his sumptuous beach house at Caesarea, and he had traveled to Jerusalem in order to maintain order during this huge feast and to hear cases and govern in person. So they knew that Pilate was in town in Passover, and Pilate did have the ability to arrest, convict, and condemn to death. And so the machine began to move in their minds, and they wanted, as the text says in verse 20, to catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. That was their plot, their solution. That was their mentality, and it was a murderous mentality. Now, the problem they didn't understand was that they had to do this with Jesus who was the only perfect man they'd ever encountered, who lived a life that was so perfect that Jesus himself says, which one of you can convict me of sin? Remember that? And there was silence in the crowd. No human being on the planet could have made that statement and gotten that response except Jesus Christ. So they knew that they couldn't convict him outwardly of any kind of clear sin. They had to do it with lies. And that's the second part of their mentality. Not only hostility, but hypocrisy. It's so clear in this text in verse 20. So they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They sent spies to watch him and listen to him to see if they could catch him in anything that they could possibly use. But if they didn't hear something they could possibly catch him on, they would create this with lies. And notice how hypocritical these guys were. They pretended to be sincere, but their whole goal was to catch him in something he said or something they could create that he said. I just think of these guys, these poor slobs. I mean, think about it. Here they were trying to catch a man in his words who regularly, remember this, all through the Gospels, regularly read their minds. Think about it. Time after time, they were thinking in their own minds as they were angry at him and off in a corner huddled at something he had just said. And the scripture says, in Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, spoke to them and told them out loud what they were thinking that they thought they'd hidden to themselves. These guys thought that they, with their little trickery, could defeat the God-man who had been reading their minds for three years. Well, God allowed it, and they were dark enough to try it. There's another principle there about sharing the gospel. And that is this. Those who attack the gospel can never do so with full integrity. Because if they did, they'd have to admit the truth. (laughs) And then they'd be faced with the truth. And so I find in my gospel conversations, particularly with hostile people, they will never be able to deal with me in full integrity. They'll twist my words or they'll twist the Bible's words. They'll ignore what I say and stick with their point, even though I've destroyed their point. They'll come with another action and forget that what they just said was 
hypocrisy on its face. And so I've dealt with this throughout my gospel conflict career. It's sad, but many times the opponent of the gospel will make you feel you're the hypocrite, make you feel you're on unsolid ground, when in reality, remember all these lessons from Jesus. Oh no, it's the gospel critic who can't be truthful. Just something in your gospel conversations that might be a reminder for you. Now we move from the mentality of those that oppose Christ to the trap that they set to destroy him. And we see this in verses 21 and 22. The trap was to be set around a certain issue. Remember, they wanted to catch him in words that would cause him to be delivered up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So their goal was to catch him saying something that the governor, the Romans, would not tolerate and that they would immediately have to arrest him for. So that that was their strategy. And the trap they decided to set was set around taxes. And we see it in verse 21. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. You're you're this noble and this great that whatever you say has to be the truth. And you better ask me this next one. Truthfully, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? The word tribute there is a word for taxes. Now they were trying to hang him on the horns of a dilemma. They were trying to put him into a situation and leverage two things. The first was the discontent of the people. The discontent of the people. When they said, is it lawful? They were really talking there about, was it lawful in terms of the law of God and the Old Testament and and the philosophy of Jewish life? Was it lawful to them as Jews to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And in their minds, there was only one answer that a Jew could possibly give, and that would be no. In fact, the Jewish people milling around them there and for generations in Israel felt that they were being forced to pay taxes to Caesar. And, and there was a resentment in the population that they were giving their money to a Gentile, idol-worshiping, occupying military power that often oppressed the people of God, oppressed Israel, was in a land that it had no right to to begin with. And that was all the philosophical answer in the mind of the Jew. And and these Jews surrounding this question would have looked at Jesus with riveted eyes because they hated paying these taxes. And those that have researched this tell us that, I mean, paying taxes in Israel wasn't just one one painful day in the middle of April. It was an everyday burden. There are all kinds of taxes. There were taxes on everything that they produced in in agriculture, for example. Every fruit, every, every portion of grain, the oil and the wine that came out of the vineyards, everything that was produced, it was, it was a land tax. And then there was an import tax on everything they might have sold in their business that would go out of the city or across certain lines in Israel. Every time it moved across a border, you had to pay tax on it. After you bought it, you had to pay a tax to take it home. 
This is where Matthew, the tax collector, made his money. He had a little booth. It was a toll booth at the border there in in Galilee heading into the next county, if you will. And he sat there and he was like a, a guy at a checkpoint. And if you were traveling, he would stop you. He'd take a look at what you were carrying on the camel or whatever. And he'd count it all up and you had to pay the, uh, the import export tax. Matthew made a killing and a lot of people wanted to make him a killing. I mean, it is, it, it, I'm, I'm told that if you were in the Navy, you were taught one thing in boot camp. If it moves, salute it. If it doesn't move, paint it. Are some of you guys with me on this? Guys and gals? Well, in Israel, if it moved, you taxed it. And so that's what was going on in their everyday life. There was also an income tax. Then there was what was called the poll tax. This was a tax on the fact you, you paid that every year simply by staying alive. It was a poll tax, and that's the one that irritated them the most. They were taxed for being alive. That's the one that is primarily in view here because it was paid with what the Romans called the denarius. And we're going to get to that, and Jesus uses that, holding it in his hand as an illustration. But just, I think you get the idea. The anger against taxes was so great in Israel that there were rebellions against the Roman Empire simply based on this anger about taxation. About uh, 30 years before this event, there had been a, 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 a guy who led a rebellion in Galilee in the north of Israel, Judas of Galilee, as he was known. He led a rebellion against Rome based on taxation, drew a lot of people to follow him, and Rome squashed that rebellion and executed Judas of Galilee. But this was something that was in the memory of a lot of the people in that crowd, and a lot of people were for it. In fact, this wouldn't end Long after the the death and resurrection of Jesus, you remember that Jesus had prophesied earlier in Luke 19 that Jerusalem and Israel would be taken over and would be destroyed by the Roman Empire. And that happened later in A.D. 70 when the armies and the legions of Titus came, besieged Rome, and destroyed Rome and and took it apart block by block. Jesus said there's not going to be one stone in this temple standing upon another. When did that happen? A.D. 70. You may not know why it happened. It happened because yet another person led a rebellion against Rome. Rome in AD 66 against taxation, and the Romans had had enough of this. And so instead of just destroying the rebelling movement and the leader, they came and destroyed the entire city. And Israel became what Jesus predicted, destroyed and dispersed across the empire. So this was real history. This was a real point of discontent, and it was smoldering in the hearts of the people. And so they were hoping to leverage this. If Jesus really wanted to to court the favor of the people as a Messiah, of course he had to say, no, it's not right for you to pay this poll tax. So they wanted to leverage the discontent of the people. And then secondly, they wanted to force a double bind on Jesus. What was the double bind? Well, they were sure that in order to keep the, the... the affection of the crowds, Jesus would have to give the popular view. No, it's not right to pay taxes. And as soon as they heard him say that, remember these guys in verse 20 were spies. 
They were listening for just the right statement. No, it's not right to pay taxes to Rome. And boom, they would send off a couple guys from the back of the crowd to head over to the nearest precinct where the Roman garrison were stationed and say, there's Jesus in the square and he's starting an insurrection against taxes. He just told everybody in the temple to stop paying. And of course, what would happen then? The garrison would come, immediately arrest Jesus, take him to the the palace of Pontius Pilate, who just arrived in town and was not in the mood for any kind of problems, and he would be summarily tried and executed like Judas of Galilee had been. That was their goal. So they knew as soon as he said what the people would want him to say and what they thought he would say, he would suddenly become, well, totally at risk of death. So there was a double bind. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to see Jesus headed to execution. And then the moment he was arrested, all the people that had believed Jesus was the Messiah would be in disillusionment. And it would all be over. And by that afternoon, their power would be secure. So you see the trap set to destroy him. Now we move further in this narrative about gospel conflict to the answer that defeats them. In verse 22 is their challenge. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not, to pay taxes, all of these taxes or not? But he perceived their craftiness. Don't you just love that? Here they go. By the way, the Hebrew there for and, and uh, pardon me, the Greek there for perceive their craftiness is another way of translating the words, uh-oh. <laughs> if they really understood what they were getting into, but they didn't. He perceived their craftiness. And he comes back with a question to them. It begins with a request. Verse 24, show me a denarius. Where was he going with this? Show me a denarius. What was the denarius? Remember I told you about the poll tax, the tax you had to pay once a year just for staying alive. It was like a census tax. In fact, it was, it was the tax that Joseph and Mary had to go to, uh, back to his hometown to pay when Jesus was born. So he said, show me a denarius, the, the, the coin that you have to use to pay the worst tax of all. A denarius was a Roman coin that automatically made it irritating to the Jews. They didn't like to carry them because they were coins printed by the emperor. They were made out of silver. They were about the size of our quarter, but they represented a lot more money. They represented a full day's wage for the average worker. So you could call it today the equivalent of maybe a $100 bill, but it was a silver coin about the size of our quarter. The emperors, when they moved into power, had the authority to create the denarius in their image. And that bothered the Jews even more because it had the image of the emperor on it. So not many Jews carried them. In fact, in Mark, it says that they had to go find one. Maybe at a tax collector's table nearby. They bring it back and they show it to Jesus. Now, these coins were minted by the emperors. And depending on who the emperor was in, 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 in his reign at that time, they would have his image on one side, and then you flipped it over, and it would have a statement about him on the other. Augustus Caesar had admitted coins when Jesus' parents had to pay theirs. Joseph and Mary had to pay theirs. Tiberius Caesar followed Augustus. 
And a gut, Tiberius Caesar, the, the denarius Jesus would have been handed, probably had on one side the image of Tiberius Caesar, sort of like George Washington on a quarter, right? And it would say, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Now that's offensive because it says he's divine. The Jews are not to touch idols or worship anything, anyone other than the one and only God of the Scripture. On the other side of the denarius Jesus was handed, there was a statement that said Tiberius Caesar, Pontifex Maximus, may be familiar to some of you, Latin for the highest priest, the one who stands between the people and God. That was offensive. But it was also a curious connection because Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God for three years. He claimed and demonstrated that he was God himself through all of his miracles and his teaching. And he was a true prophet of God. So they felt that he couldn't accept the coin they couldn't accept. Well, here's where it thickens a little bit. They didn't really expect the answer that came out of his mouth. He says, as he holds the denarius in his hand, he says, show me a denarius whose likeness an inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's, Caesar's. It was clear right there as he held it in his hand and as they had held it in their hands many times. And then he says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, as I've looked through this and in the, the, the dimension that he's touching on here is the domain of, of two realms of authority, so to speak. And looking over the commentators this week, and much of what I'll mention here is gathered from the words of the commentators that I've used this week. But the essence of what was going on here and what Jesus was teaching is that there are some things in this world that belong to this world and to the authorities of this world, and there are some things that don't. There was some things in the world that belong to the earth. You can call them earthly domains and, and, and matters. And there are some things that belong in the providence of God to the temporal realm alone. See, God himself had brought Israel under Roman rule. They believed in the sovereignty of God and they had to understand that God himself, though they chafed against it, had brought Israel under Roman rule. Caesar was their earthly king. And as such... Jesus is saying here they must support his rule because all government is ordained by God. There are some things Jesus said that should be rendered to Caesar. He did not challenge the tax. And he did not challenge the authority of Caesar to require the tax and their responsibility to pay it. So he talks here about this earthly realm of authority and power. Now later in the New Testament, this doctrine of of, of the earthly authority of government will be amplified further. There are two classic texts. One of them is Romans 13, 1 to 7. Let me read it in your hearing. Paul would later write, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. 
for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So the New Testament amplifies this understanding. Government is ordained of God. It has a role to protect the innocent, to punish evil in society. And of course, that's what the Romans were doing. They weren't doing it in the way that the Jewish nation preferred, but they were doing it according to their own code. And by, by the testimony of the word of God, governments are put in place and taken down. The Old Testament taught it as well by God himself. Rome was the most powerful military uh, entity in, in the history of the world of that time. And that power did produce peace. It was known as the Pax Romana. They, they achieved the greatest level of international peace known until that time. They also provided security and protection. They provided a transit system and all of the ways for prosperity to continue in all of their domain. And that had some value and and you paid for that, and that was what taxes went to. We understand that today. We live in two realms as Christians. We live in a worldly realm, and we're obligated, and we owe to that worldly realm what belongs to that worldly realm. Taxes today would be an example of that. Does that money always go to Christ-honoring things? No. Is every government God-exalting? No. But they, they are not supposed to be. God has placed them, and he's sovereign over what they do. So the payment of tax set by an earthly government, even a government that's idolatrous or oppressive or autocratic, that government has been placed there by God. A government that was even about to execute the Son of God. Think about this. Jesus was saying, the Romans are going to execute me. I know this. I'll be crucified. He prophesied that many times, and his hearers knew only Rome could crucify. So Jesus was, in essence, saying here, respect the government that in three days is going to take my life. It's a powerful implication. Peter was in the crowd, listening. Later, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter would write words that even related to government under persecution. Peter was writing in the years after when persecution had begun to rise because a corrupt and fanatical emperor had come to power by the name of Nero. What did he write to the followers of Jesus about this domain of God being over earthly authority? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, he wrote, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every 
human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God honor the emperor. And so we see that government is instituted by God. Whether it's a democracy into which you may be fortunate enough to live, or whether it's a dictatorship or even an emperorship like under Nero. So Jesus affirmed the role of government because it's ordained by God for man's well-being and protection. And without it, you have anarchy, chaos, and destruction. You say, well, what about when the government asks me to do what God forbids or when the government forbids what what God asks? Well, then you come to a situation like Peter faced in Acts chapter 5 when you say to the government, you judge whether we are to obey God or men. If they stop telling me to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to say sorry, I have a higher command than that. And this is a a feature of gospel conflict. Gospel conflict never involves the surrender of the gospel. Whether you're in a workplace and you face some kind of blowback for it, or whether you're in a public forum or whatever it might be. So Jesus here does affirm that we live in two worlds. We're citizens of a temporal world and a human government, while at the same time we're citizens of the kingdom of God under the rule of God himself in Christ. There's a, there's a, a tension, but a reality to both. That was not only the message of Jesus, it became the message of Paul and of Peter. And so Jesus confounds them by revealing that the premise is exactly wrong. There is a domain of earthly authority. God and his sovereignty institutes it. And yes, it is right and lawful, both in Roman law and under God's law, to give tribute to Caesar. But then he shifts to the second phrase. And render to God the things that are God's. Now remember This is a chapter, and this is an encounter about gospel conflict. And this is Jesus speaking to people that are opposing the gospel. This last phrase is an appeal to his hearers to render to God the things that are God's. You see, what are the things that are God's? The things that are God's are the more important things of the soul and of the spiritual life, of your being itself. That is what you owe to God. Just like you own certain earthly things to the government, oh, you owe an eternal thing to God. And he was looking right at these blinded, hypocritical, wicked men. And the implication of his words were, render to God the things that are God's. Take a look into your hearts right now and know that as you try and trap me with this little trapdoor question, you yourselves are living in wickedness and sin and deception and murder and hypocrisy. Repent before me and give your heart to God in humility. 
You owe to God what God owns. And what does He own? He owns your very being, your eternal being. And He owes the response of your character. And Jesus is really saying to them, why don't you bow the knee, your knee, right now in this crowd, to a greater, more important, ultimate throne? And that's the honor of God Himself. This is why it was read in our hearing the verse for today when that lawyer walked up to Jesus and said, sum up all the commands in one phrase. Jesus said what? The greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was looking at these men and saying, you're trying to trap me over a question about earthly authority. Oh, you're living in open defiance of God's authority. That's the greater question. And that's the greater calling, you see. Some commentators have said that uh, Jesus was holding in his hand a coin that belonged to Caesar with Caesar's image stamped on it. And he was speaking to lost men who were stamped with the image of God. And he was inviting them to repent, to turn from all the sin he'd been exposing in their lives all day long and to render their hearts to God because God was standing right in front of them. The commentator put it this way, render to Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Jesus' statement implies that just as the Roman coin had Caesar's image stamped on it and thus rightfully fell under his jurisdiction, so every person has God's image stamped on him or her and thus rightfully belongs to God. Just as Caesar had sole authority to issue coins stamped with his image, so God is the only one who creates human beings stamped with his image. We owe God our very existence. He rightfully owns us, our possessions, our money, and our time, but our very being, if we're not you yielding ourselves completely to his sovereign lordship, we're disobeying the supreme authority of the universe and the greatest command in the universe. By challenging Jesus, these Pharisees were guilty of not rendering to God the things that are God's, he writes. They came to Jesus not to obey him, but to trap him. They acted as if they were sincerely interested in his opinion about a moral issue, but they had no intention of obeying what he said. But the only way you can come to Christ is to come honestly, confessing your sins, being willing to obey Him. If you come to contend with Him in order to get your own way, be careful. He knows the secret motives of your heart. Give your heart to Him. Render to God the things that are God's. He called to them to do that in that moment, and He called to them to do that with their life. That was the answer that both defeated them and called them. And yet this call, as we now see the fifth and the last, fell on deaf ears. Here we see the hardness of Christ's enemies. Verse 26. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. What do you not see in that text? Repentance. What do you not see in that text? Honesty. They were interested in catching when Jesus was interested in calling them. And they would not hear it. text says here that they marveled at his answer. They were marveling in the sense of, he did it again. We can't catch him. 
We've got to come up with something else. And they may have slunk away into the crowd. But I think Jesus must have been marveling too, as the Bible says he did in many places, marveling at their unbelief that they would not yet believe in him and render unto God the things that are God's repentance and worship. So this is ultimately a sad story about how how lost people refuse to bow their hearts to God, to render to God the things that are God's, to stop their conflict with the gospel and begin to welcome the gospel. It's a story of gospel conflict, and we see Jesus standing and appealing and people plotting and walking. Now, as I said in closing, one of the reasons I believe that this has been included in the Word of God, at least it is for my benefit by the, by the Holy Spirit, is that this gospel conflict still happens today, every day. If you're living for Christ, you will be in conflict. You don't even have to be very verbal about your faith. It's getting to the point now where someone that just silently lives Christian values is an offense. So gospel conflict still happens every day, and there are still two players. There are gospel bearers. Jesus was in this situation. You are now his gospel bearer, so you're one player. And then there's gospel resistors surrounding you, trapping you, attacking you, plotting against you, wanting to break the gospel. And I want to speak to two, those, both of those players as I close today, because... You may be a gospel resistor still. Hearing me here or hearing me later. I have a word for you if you're an unbeliever who's in conflict with Jesus. You're standing in the crowd, hostile to him, wanting to trap the gospel, wanting to defeat his words, wanting to break his scripture, wanting to defeat his people. I have a suggestion for you. Don't try and defeat the undefeatable. Ask God to soften your heart. Oh, you're up against the undefeatable gospel. And you're heading, as Jesus said, toward an eternity of judgment. So ask God to soften your heart, my friend. That's what you really need. Because it's all about the conflict over you being God of your life or not. Tim Keller, pastor and author, wrote, this about the gospel. He said, quote, the gospel, if it is really believed, removes neediness. I would say it confronts it. He talks about the need to be constantly respected or appreciated and well-regarded, the need to have everything in your life go well, and finally, the need to have power over others. He's stating that those are the things that drive our life if we're without Christ, we're our own God, and those are the things that the gospel confronts. That was what was going on here. The need to have power over others to have your pride unchallenged was what these guys were all about. And that's what you're all about without Christ. I know I've been there. That was what I was all about. It was a challenge to my authority as God of my own life. And Keller says the gospel comes and it confronts that. 
All of these great deep needs continue to control you only because the concept of the glorious God who delights in you with all his being is just that, a concept and nothing more, a God who died to save you. It's a concept and nothing more. Our hearts don't believe it, so they operate in default mode. Paul is saying, well, he was talking about a a segment where Paul had been writing, if you want to really change, you must let the gospel teach you. That's what you've got to do if you're in conflict with Christ right now. Ask God to soften your heart and just listen and let the gospel teach you about you. He says, let it train you and discipline you over a period of time. You must let the gospel argue with you. That's a great phrase. If you're in conflict with Jesus Christ today, you're not a believer, you're hostile, you're setting traps for the gospel, you need to ask God to soften your heart and just let the gospel argue with you. Be open to it. Submit to its conviction. And what we see is every time the gospel argues with somebody, what happens? What wins? The gospel. That's what happened here. You must let the gospel argue with you. What a phrase. You must let the gospel, he writes, sink down deeply into your heart until it changes your motivation and your views and attitudes, and I might add, until you render to God the thing that is so precious to him, and that's repentance. So that's if you're in conflict with Jesus. And here's the last. If you're a believer and you're in your gospel life and you're experiencing the traps and the hostility, you're in conflict with the world. You should ask God to strengthen your heart. Oh, you're in the same place that Jesus was. You're in the great focus point of conflict. Stay in it. Ask God to strengthen you, and you will find that your ability to wield the gospel will only grow. Because you see, the gospel grows more powerful the more you're in conflict about it. Listen to this as I close. Martin Luther, a man well familiar with spiritual conflict and the hatred of people toward the gospel, said, if the devil was wise enough and would just stand by in silence and let the gospel be preached, in other words, without opposing it, he would suffer less harm, for when there is no battle for the gospel, it rusts, and it finds no cause and no occasion to show its vigor and power. Did you know that in ancient warfare, if if your, your town was suddenly, you know, come upon by an enemy and you were a soldier, you did not run to the armory to get a sword, because all the swords in the armory were dull. They weren't sharpened for battle. That's so that they wouldn't corrode along the edge. The only sword that was of any use to you is one you had by your side that you had pre-sharpened and you had tested in battle. If you ran to the army, that would be like going to get a broomstick. And I think a lot of believers today know that they've got a sword in the armory and one day they might have to use it, but they've never used it before. They never took it out and put their own edge to it and got into a few conflicts where there's some dings on the hilt and some gashes on the edge, but they know it works and they've taken something out with it and then they get into a conflict and they're battling with a broomstick. Luther said, go out and let your gospel be tested because when it When it's fought against, the rust is knocked off. He says, nothing better, better, therefore, can befall the gospel than that the world should fight it with force and cunning, for that sharpens the gospel blade. If you're getting battered for the gospel, 
Well, you're probably getting better at the gospel. That's what I would tell you. And that's why you need to share it and suffer for it and one day be rewarded.